0: The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network.
1: Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent.
0: Hey, what is going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 121, the short story at the end of the episode is from 25 perfect days plus five more that story is 12 o'clock high narrated by my buddy david thompson um first off well i'm gonna keep this one a little bit short got a bunch of work to do i've been super overwhelmed haven't been working out like i had been previous week um yeah so no excuses it's just what it is uh, a lot of it's been thinking about covid type stuff I, i've done a good job of avoiding all that, not really thinking about it, just going with whatever my wife says, but I've really been looking into it, especially because I have to, uh, I'm trying to figure out whether or not I am going to go to Germany. I'm scheduled to go to Germany for the Frankfurt book fair that is in uh, late October. So it's not that far away, if that's going to happen there's a lot of stuff i need to do i still need to make a booklet uh, i need to get the german uh version ready of the tbi book I uh, already have translated i just need to get the cover done and print it and make sure it's okay i am redoing uh so i got the here's tbi or CT. what the hell's wrong with me here is the hardback uh, i got that one through amazon i need to i wasn't super thrilled with it um so we're redoing the cover my buddy carl Domini is redoing the cover and uh we will get that one finalized i think it's going to be really i think the book should do really well so i want to make sure it looks as good as possible um so i uh, got a lot of stuff to get done before germany um you know but i yeah i don't want to get excited about it because i think there's a good possibility the whole thing will either be shut down because of covid or perhaps i won't be able to travel so not going to get too excited about it but i do want to take those precautions i uh, also want to start translating some more um, getting some more books translated into german so i think i might even just start with uh, morsels of mayhem and somber stroll and put that together as a little ebook for them um Besides that, uh, what's been going on? Oh, this week, one thing that was cool that happened, uh, we finally got back on Rocksmith. Uh, it's a game on Xbox. Got a long time ago. That's when I first, What's the first time I got to start learning guitar. Started playing around with uh, that for guitar. It was kind of fun. Had all kinds of songs, but then I didn't touch it for years and years. I think that was back like 2015 or something like that. Um just read, reinstalled it. Uh and my daughter really enjoyed playing it. She's learned a little bit of guitar, but just never really wants to pick it up. She'd rather spend her time singing. But on Rocksmith, they have the lyrics right there so she can sing and play guitar. And so she was excited about that. Got her a four-pack, four songs of uh from Ghost, one of her favorite bands. So she's been doing that. I just realized that we can both play at the same time on uh, a different consoles. So I think we're going to try that out this weekend. That should be kind of cool. I realize that it will help me learn some more, um, but it is, uh, man, it's is—it's really hard in my brain because on Musician, which is the app that I use all the time for the last couple of years, I've been using that to uh, practice guitar. It's tablature. Each color uh, that shows up on a fret is poor finger, like yellow is my first finger, blue is my third, Purple's my middle. Um, but on Rocksmith, they have it different where each fret is a um, – not each fret. Each string is a color. So that is messing with my brain a little bit. It's a little bit hard to make the – you know, to uh, to change it up. But I'll work on that, have fun with it. And that's a nice thing too. We were playing the other night, and my wife uh, – Liv and Jake were all singing super loud while I was playing guitar. So that was a lot of fun. I I really enjoyed hearing them sing. So anytime we could do something as a family is cool. So that's what we will be doing this weekend. Uh, Getting ready for back to school. Let's see how long it lasts. Uh, Hopefully it will. Hopefully everything will be cool out here. Um, I'm in California. Stuff doesn't seem too bad. But you never know. Uh, So never taking anything for granted. yeah, they go back to school on Tuesday. It'll be interesting to see if I'm more productive while they're gone. Um, I'm going to have a nice window of just quiet. So uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Looking forward to them being able to play with their friends again, being able to hang out. My daughter's going to a new school for eighth grade. The nice thing with that is because everyone's been out of school for so long, it should be a pretty easy transition. Last week, I mentioned that I did my first hip, well, it wasn't the first time I did hypnosis, but it was the first time I did it in a very long time. And this one was online, it was really good. It was on my commitment for um, like long-term goals, but a lot of it had to do with food. And so I've been listening to some um, self-help, self-talk, MP3s and that we're putting ideas in my head you know positive messages trying to get rid of those old ones and then the hypnosis did the same during the week it was pretty awesome i got to see it working uh there were a couple of times where i went to the cupboard and then i at night which is my biggest thing where i was like okay i want to i want to snack at night i feel like it's a reward Um, that's usually the rationalization i had but there were two times where i went i was looking at i was about to get something and i realized like i don't really want that that food's not going to make me feel good that's not a reward and then i went and got water and i was like okay this ice water is my reward and part of me was like oh well this kind of feels like bullshit, um because how is that a reward but it felt real and so And I felt good because one of the messages that played over and over was uh, I enjoy making good decisions. And that was a good decision. It was a much better decision just to drink water late at night than it was to eat something sugary or eat anything at all and kind of break a fast. So sticking with that, had another session yesterday, which is just working on overall self-esteem. I think that has been probably one of my biggest problems um negative self-talk calling myself a dumb shit thinking i'm an idiot uh all these you know this voice we don't need um so i'm trying to get rid of that and uh, one of the ways that you can do that is hypnosis so I'm gonna have a couple more episodes once i'm done with all that i will bring alexandra on to talk about hypnosis and what she's seen what we worked on and all of that good stuff uh because i also do believe w- The next session, I think we're going to work on still self-esteem, but also the ability to learn. I think I've really held myself back with both German and guitar because of my confidence, because of, you know, I, I think it's all tied together. So the more I believe in myself, the more I believe I can do different things, the better I will do with those things, the more I'll apply myself. So that's what's going on with that i think that's about oh and no, last thing so last week i mentioned uh i've been working on the wizard's tower so this week i am inputting all of those notes for sage he can go over them um, the hard thing with that book is getting the grammar down uh use a lot of uh, lucky the sketch talks in a very pe- peculiar pattern uh grammar rules are pretty much shot it's Pretty interesting, but the hard thing with that is getting it consistent. So uh, the main thing is I made a guideline going over like all the grammar rules that we have for his character. I could Yeah, as long as we're consistent, I don't care what we do with the book, uh, but that's the one thing we got to figure out. But what I did for fun, uh, Try Not to Die in the Wild West, just came up with – so it had been – John palsano gave me this rough draft September of last year. So I've been sitting on it for – just about 11 months. Yeah, almost a year. Um, finally dug it back out, trying to figure it out. We realized that we needed to add a character. Um, but the bones are all there. Uh, and then the other thing we did too, uh, John just gave me one death scene for each. So we only had about maybe 20 death scenes, 19 death scenes. I had to go back through, figure out about 11 more. But that was fun. I enjoyed doing that. It's pretty brutal. Uh, disgusting at times because... Like, i tell my wife i not only have to you know try to think about ways that i but then i also have to really picture it i have to imagine what it feels like to you know bite off my tongue and choke on it i have to imagine what it's going to feel like to fall from super high up and shatter my legs you know I have to picture what it looks like to have my it feels like to have the bone ripping through my thigh And there's no way to stop the blood loss. Um, What it feels like to get pissed on your head and then die of thirst because you're buried to your neck in the desert. Shit like that. So that's what I do for fun. That's what I did this week. I just sent them all over to John uh, along with changes that I have, uh, ideas I have for change. Uh, Because that's one of the things I really want to make clear with the Try Not To Dies. It's a team effort. Uh, Each book is different. Um, with Johns, he's written the whole first draft, and then I've torn it up and given it back to him, and then he makes his changes. I make my changes. We go back and forth. Other books, you know, like uh, Steve Montgomery, he's kind of doing pretty similar, but I'm checking in along the way. Uh, Different authors, different styles. Uh, Caitlin, one of the new ones, she's probably just going to kick ass, fly through the book. Um, We're going to meet regularly just to talk about it, make sure she's on the right path and stuff like that. So, Everyone's a little bit different, but the nice thing is just have so many going on. Uh, I just started doing a profit loss sheet for each of these because since I do have co-authors, I have to make sure to keep track of the business side of it, which is something I was not really wanting to do, but something I have to do. And once the series gets big and blows up, then I'm sure I'll get an accountant and he can handle all that kind of stuff. But for now, that's easy enough. I could do it. I just finished it. Uh, I believe we had three. So right now there's only three that are out, but there are another 16 or 17 books that I put in that I've had either contract signed or we're very close to signing them. So yeah, this I think it's gonna, I think I have a lot of faith in the series. So even though it hasn't been profitable yet, because there, there is a lot of expense going into making a book. So we have, you know, not even just uh, an advance for the co-author, but then you have artwork, you you know, the front cover, the editing, uh, any promotion, contests that we've run, uh, Amazon ads, Facebook ads, just all that stuff adds up. And so it can take a while before there's any kind of profit. But the nice thing with a series is once it takes off, it's gonna take off big time. So I'm excited about that. I really would like to make money for myself and for all these other authors, more importantly. Um, You know, if I don't make that much off of Try Not to Die, that's not a big deal because I have all of my other books, but I would love for these individual authors to be able to make some money off of their writing, in addition to the small advance I gave them. So that's where we are at with that. I think I'm gonna go because I still need to get in the sauna while I'm writing. And then I'm gonna go in the pool, get some little bit of exercise, like 15, 20 minutes of treading water, moving around, and then it's playtime with my son and daughter. Uh, Yesterday, we had fun. We played a board game, uh, Pandemic. Not try not to die in the pandemic, just Pandemic. Uh, That was pretty cool. I think today we might jump on Harry Potter or some other board game. We've been playing too many electronic games, so we'll do Rocksmith for electronics, but then I think we'll play a board game. So that's what we got going on. Hopefully, you have something going on that's uh, pretty fun this weekend as well. Hopefully, more fun than playing board games and rocking out on guitar, but I'm happy with it. All right, guys, let's go out on this short story. This is 12 O'Clock High, narrated by my buddy David Thompson from 25 Perfect Days Plus 5 More. All right, hope you enjoy the story. Later.
1: 12 O'Clock High, November 14th, 2066. Residential Recreational Zone 74 was practically deserted. A few kids played tackle soccer, filtration masks strapped around their little heads. One kid drove his shoulder into a spindly boy, slamming him onto the scorched field. The sole parent standing on the sideline clapped weakly. Colonel Charles Hayden was the only person not wearing protection. He kept staring at the gates, checked his watch. In their two years of retirement, Andrew had never been late to their Sunday chess match. Charles wondered if it had something to do with the date, five years to the day since they'd done the unthinkable. Charles was sitting at one of the concrete tables surrounding the pond. Just looking at the black water caused an itch in his throat. He hacked up a mouthful of bloody phlegm, spat it on the ground, and wiped his eyes with his once-white handkerchief. This used to be a great fishing spot. The rod holders attached to the benches around the pond were now rusted. Even the fish had gone the same way, as most everyone Charles had known. Charles arranged his gold and silver pieces on the chessboard, painted on the concrete top. Two old men were sitting a few tables down, their eyes squinting in concentration, behind their fogged-up plastic masks. One guy's muffled voice asked Charles if he wanted to play Winner but Charles said he was waiting for someone. Andrew was the most punctual person that Charles had ever known. Charles tried to tell himself Andrew was homesick, unable to call because the black lung had progressed. Last week he seemed fine, coughing much less than Charles had, but now that Charles thought about it, Andrew had been acting strange. They never spoke of the unthinkable, but that afternoon Andrew was dancing around it, mentioning people who'd been in the command center, the officer who'd patched through every call. Andrew seemed agitated, distracted, actually lost every match, something that had never happened. While Andrew had never mentioned the calls specifically, that's all Charles could think about. They'd made hundreds that night, given the commands to correctional officers. Charles reached under his chair and pulled out his mahogany case, He carefully set it on the concrete table so as not to scuff the wood. Charles thought back to Andrew, saying several of the officers had been found dead. Charles had reminded Andrew the streets had never been safe, especially for old men. Although Charles wasn't too concerned about his safety, leaving his chess pieces out longer than necessary was asking for trouble. He put away the back row of gold pieces on Andrew's side first, wondered if maybe his friend had reached the first stage of insanity. The black lung progressed differently for everyone. Some killed themselves during the paranoia. Charles placed the pawns in the felt-lined case. So many pawns, and only one king. Charles checked the park one last time. A couple by the fence gathered their items and hurried toward the back exit. Two of the way's missionaries had just entered the premises. They wore filtration masks and black shirts instead of the crisp white ones of old. Even the highest quality white fabric couldn't keep its brilliance in San Angeles's air, and their line of work wearing white wasn't a good idea. The missionaries, as Charles called them, walking toward the two old men playing chess. It didn't matter that the Way had more members than any other religion, that nearly every political leader, including the president, was a member. They still pounded the pavement, searched for new recruits who would be willing to accept the promises that never came true. Their preacher said he'd reshape the Americas, make a healthier, happier, more prosperous nation. He said he'd lead them to salvation, the one true religion delivered through the one true voice. Charles used the back of his sleeve to wipe the sweat from his forehead. It wasn't even noon, and already in the hundreds. The gray sky blocked out the mountains, cut skyscrapers in half, made it so he could barely see the top of the tide wall surrounding the city. Charles was grateful he had no children to leave with this shit when he died. A voice from behind said, Good morning, resident. Charles took his time turning around. Both of the missionaries were standing there. One held a Bible, the other a scanner. Both had particle pistols on their hips. The taller of the two spoke through his mask, but his words were unmuffled, a nice feature of the more expensive models. Are you with the way? Charles rolled back his sleeve to expose the tattoo. Twenty-five years of dedicated worship. They seemed disappointed. The stubby one with the scanner asked Charles for the name of a disbeliever. Sorry, I don't know anyone. Surely there's someone you know that needs guidance? Charles motioned at his empty table. Does it look like I got any friends? The tall one straightened his back. You know the rules, brother. Give us a name or it'll be a mark. Mark away. The stubby one scanned Charles' wrists. I'm sorry, Colonel. You have a good day. Charles closed the case. The sun played off the gold plate stamped into the top. January 1st, 2064, in recognition of 40 years of honorable service. Honorable. Right. He'd been on the President's Council, the highest position he could have reached, but when the orders came down, it didn't matter. Charles didn't have a choice. He didn't even try to argue to get out of making the calls. He'd learned his position didn't mean a damn thing when not even his wife was excused for failing to make weight. All it got him was this stupid chess set. Charles looked toward the park's clock. The missionaries were escorting a muttering old woman through the gates. A man and a young boy walked past them, each holding a cellophane-wrapped bouquet of flowers. The man had the noticeable limp Charles hadn't seen since he retired. Charles was excited to see his nephew, John, but not about to let it show. John had aged in the last five years, his red hair too gray for a man in his forties. John placed his hand on the young boy's shoulder and signaled him to stop a few feet from Charles' table. Good day, Colonel, John said through his filtration mask. Charles nodded. John introduced the boy as his son and told him to say hi. The frail boy softly muttered a hello while staring at his shoes. The boy looked around seven or eight, too old to be John's biological son. Charles felt the phlegm rising, tried to stifle it but couldn't, hacked the bloody goop in his handkerchief. John said, You shouldn't be out here without... Charles waved his nephew off the subject... The filtration mask wasn't going to wipe out the darker-than-the-sky fist-sized spot on Charles's lung. "'Why are you here?' Charles said. "'I was worried about you.' Charles figured it had to be his noisy neighbor, Betty. The woman couldn't keep her mouth shut, and she was one of the few who knew about their Sunday chess match. Charles, of course, had a tracker implanted from his days of service, but only top-level officers had access." John set his flowers on the table and unfolded a flat screen he pulled from his pocket. Have you been watching the news? John pressed a button on the screen, then handed it to Charles. I recognized him right away. I met him at your house. A photo of Andrew in full dress uniform appeared on the screen. It was from years ago, back when Andrew had a full head of hair. A reporter described in gristly detail. The condition of the general's body. The controllers found it in the parking lot of the orphanage, which the reporter mentioned used to be a prison. The controllers were looking into a connection between his death and the murders of ten other high-ranking officials. Charles recognized all of the names. He'd worked with each of them at some point in his career. Charles couldn't be sure, but they had probably all played a part in the eradication. The video stopped. John took back the screen and put it away. I'm sorry. Charles cleared his throat. He lived a long life. I just thought I should find you. If there's someone out there... There's not. If there is, I'm too old to be hiding. But you could stay with us. Charles turned away and coughed. A young couple entered the park. There was a man in a black jumpsuit by the bathroom's. A long-haired teenager slipped change into the vending machine. Suddenly, everyone looked suspicious. John said, I saw your eyes when you read their names. You know it's real. Charles ran his fingers across the smooth edge of the chest case. He smiled at Matthew, hiding behind John's legs. Did you pick out these flowers? Charles asked. Matthew nodded then ducked back behind John. John eased him back out and said, We're going to visit the cemetery. You should come. I need to get going. Charles hadn't been there since Peter's funeral, the worst day of Charles' life, standing there, knowing he was the one who'd made the call. Charles stood and glanced at the man in the black jumpsuit still watching them, It was nice seeing you, but I'm running late. John blocked Charles's path. Just come with us. You'll be safe. John lifted his shirt to reveal the grip of a ballistic firearm tucked into his waistband. Charles started laughing, which sent the bloody phlegm shooting up his throat. This time, he just spat it on the ground. Should we smile for the pictures? Charles asked. There were cameras everywhere. The man in black had moved to a bench, but was still watching them. He was trying to be discreet, definitely ex-military. Charles grabbed the case, bent down next to Matthew. Do you know how to play chess? Matthew shook his head. Well, that's a shame because your dad is an expert. When you go home, he's going to teach you how to play chess like I taught him. Charles held the case to Matthew. Matthew looked to his dad for approval. When John nodded, Matthew took the case and mumbled a muffled thank you. "'Just come with us,' John said. "'I know Tammy would love to see you.' "'No, I have an appointment.' Charles couldn't look at John. It was too painful. He tried to remind himself that if he hadn't made the call, he would have been executed for treason. That's what he'd been telling himself for five years.' John put his hand on Charles' shoulder. You can't keep blaming yourself. Charles gave a little nod and walked off, angled across the park headed for the south gate. He turned left onto 7th Street and headed for the bus stop three blocks down. He wished he'd kept his car, but when he'd retired he forgot to sign up for the automatic renewal of his driver's license. The DMV's denial rate was up to 20%, so public transportation was Charles' only option. When he reached the end of the second block, he looked behind him. The man in black was a block back. Charles quickened his pace. The 1150 bus was pulling away from the curb. Charles tried to make it look like a leisurely stroll. He kept thinking about the western reruns he used to watch with his father. Showdowns at noon. Only Charles was running away from instead of stepping into the street. If the younger Charles saw this, he'd puke. The bus pulled over half a block ahead. Charles ran as fast as his tired heart could handle. Charles stepped through the doors just before they snapped shut. His heart thudded against his ribs. Charles pushed his way through the crammed bus. He was stuck between two teenagers. The bus began to move, and Charles started breathing. They made it a few feet when the brakes squeaked and the doors swished open. He couldn't see who the driver had stopped for, but inched further down the jam-packed aisle until he was up against the emergency exit. The door slammed shut, and the bus pulled into its dedicated lane. A low murmur made its way toward Charles, people complaining about someone pushing. Buildings zipped by. Charles looked at the emergency cord, but even if he did make it to a controlling force station, what would he tell them? Did some guy got on the same bus as him? The crowd was getting louder. Someone said, Watch it, asshole! Charles saw the library coming up on the right. He yanked the cord and was out the door the second the bus stopped. Charles hurried up the stairs. He reached the front door, threw it open, and checked behind him. The man in black jumped out of the bus and was walking toward him. His right hand was buried in his pocket, probably gripping the same gun he'd used on Andrew and the others. The library was cold and quiet. Charles headed for the elevator. The digital indicator said the car was on its way down from the third floor. Charles looked to the front door, saw the man in black reaching for the handle. The elevator dinged open. Charles slipped inside, his finger mashing the top floor button. The doors closed, but not before he saw the man in black's blue eyes. When the elevator opened, Charles ran down the hallway and into the stacks. There wasn't a soul in sight. ''Hello?'' Charles said as he entered one aisle, then turned down another. Lights flicked on as he stepped into each aisle, like overhead breadcrumbs for the man in black. Charles was suddenly confused, trapped in this maze. The elevator chimed. Charles crouched down. The mirror in the corner gave Charles a clear view of the elevator. Without any hesitation, the man in black headed straight for Charles. He must have had Charles's tracker code. There was no other explanation. Charles saw the emergency exit, ran, pushed open the door, and climbed a flight of stairs that led to the roof. With some luck, the killer's scanner wouldn't know whether he went up or down. Charles slowly pushed the service exit and prayed there wasn't an alarm. He walked onto the roof. The only place to hide was the three-foot-wide track along the front of the enormous billboard, overlooking the street. Charles stepped out looking everywhere but down. He grabbed the electronic screen with both hands and made his way to the center felt as if the slightest breeze would send him plummeting to the pavement. Charles finally opened his eyes, looked at the electronic image. It was an ad for the way. The preacher's bowed head, directly above his. The man in black poked his head around the edge of the billboard, his blue eyes and blonde hair a rarity outside of the way's top echelon. Charles suddenly remembered the face but Private Cody Bradford had been reported dead. Charles blinked, wondered if he'd hit the first stage of insanity. But this was definitely Cody, almost the exact image of his father. Cody said, Aren't you a little old to be playing hide-and-seek? Charles kept his left hand on the billboard to steady himself. Aren't you a little young to be chasing old men around the city? Charles tried to sound tough but he knew exactly what he looked like, hanging up here like a coward. Cody's hand was in his pocket. Come off of there so we can talk. No, I like it here. The breeze feels good. Cody clenched his jaw and stepped onto the railing, causing it to sway. He no longer looked as confident when he brought his hand out of his pocket to balance himself. Charles locked eyes with Cody. Cody. So what is it you want to talk about, young man? Charles watched as Cody started to reach inside his pocket. If Charles started rocking, he could probably send Cody over the rail. To hear you beg for mercy. Why don't I save both of us a lot of time by just letting you shoot me? Cody pulled out the pistol. On your knees, and beg. Charles blew out a long breath. Why the hell had he been running? He let go of the screen. Begging just means I've got something to live for. You killed my dad. You and the way. Son, I killed a lot more than your dad. The pistol shook in Cody's hands. You make me sick. Yeah, you and me both. You're not even sorry? The gun didn't scare Charles. Neither did the angry young man behind it. Why don't you just do both of us a favor and pull the trigger? The clock chimed. Shut the hell up. You think you're so smart? He had to yell over the chimes. You and your friends destroyed everything. Yeah, I guess we did. Charles turned and put both hands on the railing. He thought of Peter, his only son, If Charles would have refused the order, someone else would have made the call. But Charles had been scared to die. What the hell are you doing? Cody yelled over the chimes. You don't need any more blood on your hands, kid. Trust me. Get on your knees! Charles leaned forward, felt all the blood rush to his head, then his feet hitting the top of the rail, spinning him end over end. The sky, the ground, the steel building in front, the brick library behind. Then, nothing.
0: This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.